began those torturous marches from wherever the villages were down toward the areas where the ships were. And when they got down, with many dying along the way for many reasons, and when they got to the shoreline area, the survivors were herded into long, low buildings built of small timbers and thatched roofs called barracoons. In the barracoons, they would be washed, they would be fed, almost force-fed, they would be crudely medicated to hurry them toward a fit physical condition. When it was considered that they were in sufficient condition, now a few at a time, they would be moved out into the yards of the barracoons, and there the <coughs> owners of the ships would come, the captains and the mates, and there would ensue these hideous physical examinations, every orifice of the human body, and then the purchases, and then the branding, usually between the shoulder blade usually with the initial of the ship that was going to take them out. And then would come the time, as I pictured it in my mind's eye from things I'd read, that they were being moved from the barracoon across that strip of beach to the little cockleshell canoes at the edge of the water. And when these Africans from the inland areas, many of whom had never seen the sea, they were terrified. Those who saw the surf march up the beach to them it was the jaws of some incomprehensible animal. They'd never seen anything like that. A ship lying offshore was to them a floating, flying house or something like that. They didn't even know what a ship was. It seemed it was when those Africans were being moved from Barracoon toward the canoes that for the first time they began to perceive the enormity of the unknown that was in store for them because it was on that beach that I had read so many times that so many of them who up to this time had been virtually stoic went into absolute spasms of terror. They would fall prone on the beach. They were groveling. They were screaming. They would use their fingers like claws digging into the sand. They would use their necks and heads like the beaks of giant birds trying to bite up one last hold on the land that was their own. And they were beaten up from that beaten down across the further beach onto and into those canoes that took them out through the surf out to the ships. And it was into the holds of those ships that they were put. And that was how the ancestors of every black person in this country without exception were brought here. There were no exceptions. There was no other way. And I was riding along with my head so full of this when we came to a big village up ahead. And I looked up ahead and I was astounded to realize that those people up there knew what had happened behind us in the village of Jufere. Obviously they knew. Obviously someone had come out and the news had relayed ahead of it before I had left. Because ahead of us now, there were poles sticked along the road. There were green liana vines hanging like the cords from microphones, but thicker. And at intervals along these vines hung the great glossy green saboa leaves that the Africans or Gambian Jews for sunshades or umbrellas. And the people were thronging out into the road, milling, waving. We could see them as we approached. And they were crying out some cacophony of sound. And we came on the driver slowing down when he finally got to the people. I guess he was doing then maybe two miles an hour. And we were trying to nudge he was through the people who were all jostling and crowding around. 
I didn't know what to do. Again, I felt this full of helium feeling. I just stood up again like a jack-in-the-box, now in the Land Rover. And I'm looking down at these people, these people who are jet black all around, wizened elders and all ages and sizes and whatnot. And it came to me, looking at them staring up at me as they waved, what a huge caprice it was. There they were looking at me, seeing me as the symbol of all we 25 plus million black people over here. And I, in turn, am using in effect our eyes looking at them, seeing people who have never left Africa since the beginning of man, so far as we know. And the huge caprice was that the only reason either of us was in either place was that caprice of which of our forefathers had happened to be taken out of Africa and which had been left there. That was the only reason either of us was in either locale. And I was full of that going on in among those people when I suppose we had gotten about a third of the way through them. And I suddenly began to understand what it was that they all were crying out. I think I hadn't understood it because I didn't understand their tongue and they were all closely clustered and I didn't get anything but the wall of sound as opposed to the individual sounds. But it began to come to me now that what they were all crying out from wizened old elders, the men, the old grandmothers with skin like leather, their breasts like old bell straps, the childbearing women, many of them pregnant, the maidens, the youth, and the little youngsters, jaybird naked of both sexes. They were all milling, thronging, looking up at me with beaming, bullion expressions on their faces. And what they were crying out, which I had not understood now, until now, was Mr. Kinte, Mr. Kinte. <laughs> and I tell you what, I am a man. But I remember when a sob hit me about ankle level, I remember throwing my hands up to my face, my fingers, and shrieking, crying. I don't think I ever cried like that since I was a little baby. It just seemed to me that if one really knew the story of black people, if one knew the way that our forefathers had been brought here, that it really didn't matter what one thought about black people individually or collectively, but it just seemed that as a human being, one ought to weep that that thing called slavery had ever happened in the annals of human being, and I just couldn't help it. I wept on out through that village, and all the way, more or less, until we got back to that car, and I got myself onto a flight back to New York. And when I got there, I found that it took me a while to get used to being back. About half a day that I couldn't even call my own people. And then I called my brother, George. And he told me the sad news that while I was away, Cousin Georgia had died in Kansas City. My brother's a lawyer. He's very orderly. And he brought me a folder with the data about the funeral. Then it included the hospital report, and on there was time of death. And I went 
I sort of fiddle around with information, and I made the time transfer from Kansas City to West Africa. And then it hit me like a thunderbolt when suddenly I realized what had in fact happened, that as the last survivor among them all, Cousin Georgia, the youngest who had told the story to me and to whom I had gone back several times since our reunion because she was so, my source of strength, my source of support, my source of story, my source of history. And now it seemed that as the last survivor, one of the reasons that I have to feel that this whole thing was meant to be was that the time transfer or the transposition of the time zones from Kansas City to West Africa showed that Cousin Georgia had died literally within the hour that I had stepped foot in that village in Africa. And it always since has seemed to me that as that last survivor, it was her role to see me to that village where the link across the ocean in the family story would be made. And then Cousin Georgia, too, went on and joined the rest to watch me and see what would I do with it. It was a charging moment and a, a kind of motivation that it is hard to put to words. I got myself together emotional enough to go to the publishers, and I told them the story of what had happened. I told them that actually I wanted to write a book that technically would be the story of a family my own, but which broadly would really be the saga of a people, that every black person, it does not matter who he or she is, ancestrally traces back to some African, born and reared in some village, captured in some way, put into some ship, brought across the same ocean into some succession of plantations. And I told them that what I wanted to do now was write a book that would be the symbol story, the saga of all black people. And it would be a book called Roots. I told them that we had to have, I had to have, what we call in the writing business, saturation research. And they said they understood. It meant that I would try to bring every possible thing to this book, every avenue of research, everything I could commit myself to. And what intrigued me now, and it was because of my Coast Guard background, was the ship that had brought Kunta over. I had some clues. When I was a little boy, Grandma and the others always had said that ship brought him to Annapolis, they would pronounce it. There was no place they could possibly have been talking about but Annapolis, Maryland. It was at that time I did a little quick reading, a burgeoning young city vying for supremacy as a port with Baltimore. Numerous ships came in and out of Annapolis, some of them slave ships on occasion. I had another clue, and that was that now I knew where the African Kunta Kinti had come from, the Gambia River. And the next thing I needed to know was about when had the ship sailed. And I had a clue for that too, as the old griot had said, prefacing his story of Kunta Kinti, 
He had said about the time the king's soldiers came. And I had to find out what was he talking about. He had obviously been talking about some kind of military thing. I went now to London, got on a plane, flew over there. And I went searching. This was my first experience in heartbreaking research. I searched and searched, and it finally, I think it took me about six weeks, sifting through records before in the British parliamentary records, I found that there was a group called Colonel O'Hare's forces. His name was Colonel Charles O'Hare, who had been sent with 30-odd men from London to the Gambia River to guard the then British-held Fort James Slave Fort. There was no question, but that was what the Griot had referred to. It had occurred in early 1767, so this gave me a time frame. It had to have been around in that area of time that Kunta had been captured. Now I begin another search. The incredibly involved, the incredibly difficult, and incredibly frustrating search for what ship was it? I went to Lloyd's of London. The fact that I'd been in the Coast Guard 20 years was helpful with any maritime people, I finally got to a very high official. And I remember I was talking with this man, and he was sitting behind his desk. And I remember his eyes kind of falling in a way that made me kind of look down. And I realized I never had realized I was just tears draining down on my shirt as I poured out of me the passion, the fervor, the drive of trying to pull together the history of a people. And finally, the man stood up. His name was Mr. R.C.E. Landers. And he said, young man, Lords of London, we'll do all we can to help you. And it was he and they who began to open up to me doors to places where there are records of slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflect that for 200 years, ships sailed carrying cargoes of slaves. And there are boxes of them, the records, which have never even been opened. Nobody's had occasion particularly to go into them lately. And anyway, to compress, I worked for about seven solid weeks. Finally, I was in the 1,023rd set of slave ship records in the public records office in London. One afternoon going down across this sheet that had 30 ship's movements on it. And I went on down, and my eye came to number 18, all of it in this old-fashioned handwriting. You have to adjust to it. My eye would go out to the right as it had with endless, endless before cases of the same thing. And I looked out, and there was Destination Annapolis. And somehow, it didn't really grabbed me at the moment. I remember I took the little information, picked up the records, went back and turned them in properly, and went on out. Around the corner from the public records office is a little tea and cruller shop. I got me some tea and a cruller, and I was sitting there sort of sipping the tea and swinging my foot like it's all in a day's work when it suddenly hit me Maybe I had indeed found that ship. I still owe that lady for that tea and cruller. <laughs> I went out of there like a shot. 
I got to a telephone and called. I got the last available seat on the 6 o'clock flight to New York. I got on that plane that night. There was not even time to go back to the hotel to get my stuff if I was to make that flight, and I didn't go back. And I flew that ocean that night, sitting up, sleepless, seeing in my mind's eye the book I had to get my hands on. I could see it. I'd had it in my hands. I had a light brown back, dark brown letters, shipping in the port of Annapolis by Vaughn W. Brown. I got to New York, took the shuttle flight to Washington, Library of Congress, got this book, flipping through it, there was one line in agatype that tended to support. That was, in fact, the ship. And I just about went berserk. In time, I would get to the author of that book, Vaughn Brown. He was a broker in Baltimore. He dropped what he was doing. He left his office, got in his car. He drove to Annapolis, and he helped me pin down that was indeed the ship. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to stop it right here. We're going to continue with the conclusion.